Should they buy it? Should they sell it? Can they make a profit out of it? They don't care if Syria is bombed to the ground. The question is, is it bad for profits or is it good? Sometimes wars are good, sometimes they're bad. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, welcome to the 65th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 17th of October, 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the new monthly subscriber, Senen K. And also, a big shout-out to Andy X. Burgess, Je Hack, and Kami Scum, who all left groveling reviews for the show over on iTunes. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Marx's blogger extraordinaire, Michael Roberts. Michael's blog, The Next Recession, is one of the best Marxist economics blogs out there, and he also runs a very active Facebook group as well. We talk about a recent series of articles Michael wrote called Robots and AI, Utopia or Dystopia, which was prompted by Paul Mason's recent book, Post-Capitalism. So, without further ado, the interview. So, Michael, you recently did a series of articles on the impact robotics could make to our economy. You were influenced in this by Paul Mason's recent book, Post-Capitalism. Yes, uh, Paul Mason, uh, who, as you know, is uh, it's quite a prominent journalist in, in the UK, um, working for some of the big uh, broadcasting networks in the past. And he has a history of being uh, of, of a Marxist heritage while he got into broadcasting. And he's been uh, quite a, a lively and enlightening journalist in dealing with some of the events around the world and, and on economic issues. And uh, Mason has come up with a book which he called uh, Post-Capitalism, which is significant, I think, in the title that he doesn't call it uh, socialism. He's talking about a society after capitalism, which is what he wants. And he's looking to say that new society after capitalism will be based upon automation, upon uh, artificial intelligence, upon the internet, and that these forces of change in technology are so different and so powerful that it will be impossible for capitalism to encapsulate them, to capture the value in them, or to control the uh, intellectual and knowledge workers who understand them and develop them. And that this opens up a new sort of society which will break away from the old class-ridden uh, society based on the ownership of property and making profit. And it will be uncontrollable. And there'll be, we'll move from a, the old class struggle between the capital and the working class to, say, a, a new society, a network of communities based on this new technology. This sounds all very well and good. Like, But how does this process kind of take place? What, what does he see as the seeds of this? Well, I suppose he's arguing that the old ideas that Marx had in the 19th century, that through mechanization, workers would, uh, would, be, would lose control of the means of production. They would simply be uh, providing their labor power, and they would be, as it were, in opposition to a whole bunch of machines and factories owned and controlled by capitalists. That uh, basis for what Marx called the class struggle and the exploitation of workers is beginning to, uh, will give away in this new technological revolution, the Internet of Things. It offers the possibility to connect machines and equipment to each other. 
Uh, it offers a whole range of new uh, uh, scientific uh, developments. And above all, it means that uh, workers have the opportunity to free themselves from uh, toil and labor with machinery through robots and, auto and uh, artificial intelligence. Now, that sounds great. And you have to say that Marx and Engels also thought that was the point, that socialism would only be possible if uh, we had a, an economy or society globally which had developed a technical level which would enable workers uh, not to have to toil all day uh, to make a living, but to give them the free time to develop and associate in a common basis and move forward to develop human potential. And that capitalism in many ways was creating conditions for that by dramatically increasing uh, the scientific base and the mechanized base of uh, production so that we could produce so many things in the shortest possible time that we didn't need to work all that time. The point that Marx and Engels made was that uh, what blocked that was that the ownership of the production, the ownership of this uh, mechanization remained in the hands of a smaller and smaller number of people who had blocked the, the opportunity for the rest of those who had to work for a living to develop this new free association with the time available to them and to use the resources in common to do so. Uh, Mason saying that in some way uh, that this new technology is so different that it can sort of happen without ending this class struggle, that, that, that capitalism will in a sense wither away because the capitalists won't be able to control the new internet, the new robots, the new uh, technology, and this will be controlled by lots of small people, perhaps uh, as, as we are now talking, I'm sitting in a small room in front of a computer. I now can control the world through the Internet, and I don't need to worry about uh, my, a capitalist owner anymore. And we can all talk, free hackers and Internet people, uh, through a network which capitalism can't control. Well, I don't really think that that new technology has changed that situation. But it's clear that most of the new technology is now owned and controlled in the usual way by big capitalist combines like Google, like Facebook, like Microsoft. They still control the vast majority of these, this new technology. And all the developments are taking place in robots, in 3D printing, in healthcare and life sciences. This is taking place primarily, although much of the technology is being discovered by individuals and uh, on public money, is being captured and controlled by big capitalist combines. Nothing has really changed, and I'm, I'm afraid while it, the technology provides the opportunity for a new post-capitalist world, it won't happen until capitalism, the mode of production, is actually broken and, and superseded by one based on common ownership and democracy. It seems that around the edges, on, on the computer programming side of things, there is a culture of open source software, but which is kind of like the antithesis of, of the capitalist model. But still, this actually seems to do is to lower the cost of production for companies such that they don't have to pay licenses, they can use open source things. And that you still have capitalists using that in the main. And it, it's not like it's causing a revolution in the ownership of the computing powerhouses around the world. They're still owned by the corporations. Well, I agree. I think, I think that's the, the point. And also, you think about it. Yes, we, I could, we're spending time here outside of the control of capitalism discussing this through a voice uh, across, across the internet. Uh, we can think our own ideas outside. We're, we're not controlled by capitalism by this doing this. But 
I could also sit down here and if I was for an employer have a, a work to do, and many people do, in the middle of the night they're actually working for their employer, they're sorting out a problem the employer's got and then they go to work the next day. In many ways this free new internet is actually providing extra productivity for the people, that, uh, the, the capitalist combines that people work for because they're using their ideas and knowledge to help out of time. They're even getting paid now and yet they're still helping. So the free opportunity to develop your own ideas through the internet on the one hand is also captured by the fact that in many ways, as you say, the productivity of the labour force is improved for the capitalist combines by the fact that many ideas are actually developed on the internet through the computer outside of work time. I read this book called Forces of Production, A Social History of Industrial Automation by David F. Noble. I don't know if you know it. I don't know that, no. So he's a Marxist guy. I think he was a professor of the history of computation or technology in MIT. And it was about machine tools in the middle of the 20th century and how they were being starting to become more and more automated and he he discussed again and again through looking at the historical record of what happened and how these machines developed was how they didn't develop what would be the most efficient way say for society that sometimes the capitalist class would take they take a hit on the profit if it meant that they could keep hand under control so that if, if, for example, the machine tools were designed in a certain way and it meant that the workers on the, on the factory floor were more powerful, that they would implement a very different and maybe a more costly scheme. This kind of shows us the kind of class basis of the development of a technology. I'd be skeptical myself about whether we can see these technologies, that if we can envisage them in our head, they could be made, will they get the capital being pushed towards them to push them into a situation where they actually might help to make some kind of revolutionary change. Well, yes, I mean, the history of uh, technology is the hist um, under the capitalist mode of production is that, that it's technology that re reduces the amount of cost of labor uh, and in raises the rate of exploitation of labor. That's the purpose of new technology as far as capitalists are concerned. And they're not going to introduce any new technology unless it delivers that improvement in profitability across the board eventually starting off with those who have it first and then those who get it later and the development of technology is that process under capitalism and in many ways the big contradiction under capitalism is between the introduction of technology to increase the productivity of labor so that we get more things in the shorter period of time better services in a shorter period of time things that make us live longer uh, improve the quality of our lives in a shorter period of time against the profitability of the capital that's being invested to produce that. And while you have this investment in technology will only take place if it's profitable over time, then there's a contradiction between the profitability of the technology and its productivity. And that's the irony of it all, that capitalism is a mode of production which has dramatically increased the use of technology and mechanization to replace the use of labor or the toil of labor, but only if profitability is delivered. So that contradiction develops under capitalism between the drive of the capitalists to raise the productivity of labor through mechanization, now robots, and the resulting tendency for the profitability in this investment for the owners of the capital to fall. That's some, that, that big contradiction, most important law in political economy, Marx called it, becomes even more relevant 
in this world of, of robots and artificial intelligence. I mean, classic example, as we know, Thomas, it, in the old days, was it, lots of technology was never introduced, which I think the point you're making, if it meant a big reduction in the profitability of a particular industry. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the electric light bulb that lasts forever. That technology has been probably 100 years old, but has never really been introduced because it would damage the industries and companies that control and produce uh, uh, bulbs. Uh, and we have we see uh, perhaps like a bigger issue is that the development of uh, renewable energy has been very much delayed and taken a long time because of the power and influence of uh, fossil fuel energy companies who wish to preserve their profits. It's only beginning to take place because fossil fuel companies are converting themselves into renewable energy companies to try and take advantage of the capture the productivity and the improvement in conditions that will result from a, a world where there's less carbon emissions, which is inevitably something that they have to move towards now, but afford to gates and still do over the last 30 or 40 years. A lot of, say, industries, say like computing and all these, they were born on the back of state investment, that the amount of capital that would need to be driven into research and development would be too much, say, for one individual company or corporation to, to bear. These technologies we have, like 3D printers, the idea, that the, the kind of science fiction idea we have is that we have a 3D printer in our house and we say, oh, I'd like a pair of Nike runners and you download a, a copy of how to print them out and then you print it on your machine. Like the 3D printers are, are far away from that. They're not good at, as far as I can see, different types of textures and, and types of materials. Like this, this seems to me like if you really wanted to get 3D printing into the future, like in some kind of sci-fi way, it would need a huge amount of investment into research and development. Like, is it likely, do you think that we could see a capitalist doing that, and if the capitalist can't afford to do it, uh, if it's too big, why would the state do it if the state is essentially a tool of the capitalists, if it would diminish profits of all these capitalistic corporations? Well, that is the contradiction between, as I was saying, between profitability and the development of new technology that will benefit everybody. But we know that pro progress has been made in these areas, and we but as you point out, a lot of the kickoffs for the some of the most important new technologies, both in health, like fantastic improvements in health uh, conditions and uh, not just medicines, but also methods by which to avoid uh, getting diseases like vaccines and so on. Most of that and, and technology in the, in the area we're talking about now, like computers and software, a lot of that was started actually by the use of public money. There's a, a, a very good uh, research work done by Professor Mazzucato at Sussex University in where she points out a whole range of what we regard as being successful stories of uh, capitalist uh, entrepreneurship like Apple, like um, many of the other technology developers, Microsoft. All the original algorithms, the original uh, hardware, was came through uh, public finance, often in space research, often in military research in the case of, of the US, but taxpayers' money to set that up. And these things were then picked up and developed and captured by entrepreneurs and privatized, if you like, uh, for profit. And that it, it will hold back the possible development of much of the technology to its full potential. And that's, that's the problem. Although we're seeing robots and 
AI and other things beginning to develop and raise the productivity of labor, continue there's a, there's a conflict between the need of capital to capture profit out of this rather than to develop the resources for all. What would, what would Marx think of a robot future? Well, I think Marx would think this was a great step forward uh, on the one hand, because if it reduces the amount of time, and time is, is, all, is the essence of, of our lives, the amount of time we spend on toiling in order to uh, make ends meet, uh, to bring up our children, to develop our family, to develop, to, if we can reduce the amount of toil involved, that things that we don't want to do and spend more of our time on things that we could develop our human potential, intellectually, artistically, scientifically and so on, then if robots can take away uh, a large amount of this toil of basic and essential Ooh. tasks and uh, reduce the cost of that and the time involved for human labor to the minimum, fantastic. That's, that's the, uh, the gain of technology that can come about. The other side of the coin is, of course, that if robots and other forms of technology like this are just going to reduce all the existing jobs uh, that people are, currently have to make a living and do, and there is no income therefore available to the people who are put out of work. And we we estimate now that something like the robot technology could well, over the next decade or say, so, uh, rule out probably 40 to 50 percent of the jobs that we talk about now as being a, a sort of standard job that we get in various sectors of industry and services. Of course, other jobs may well be uh, replace them. But clearly the purpose, uh, robots will reduce the amount of human labor time necessary. But does that mean that people's living standards and conditions are, uh, have to fall as well? And that's the risk that under capitalism you end up with uh, forcing down, by shedding labor, labor time, you're also forcing down the incomes of labor. And you end up with an e more, even more unequal society, both in incomes and wealth. Today, uh, uh, Thomas, the... Um, uh, there's an annual global wealth report comes out every year by Credit Suisse, and today that's been reporting for 2015, and it now says that 1% of all adults in the world own 50% of all the wealth in the world. That's houses, money, uh, other assets that they control. 50% uh, of all the wealth in the world is owned by just 1%. That's a, a tiny, tiny proportion I think 30 million out of a, uh, an adult population of 4 billion. So we already have an incredibly unequal world. If that 1% is therefore going to control uh, all the new technology, while the rest of us are out of work and are dependent therefore upon the handouts of the 1%, then it's going to be in a very, it's not going to be a, a, a utopian world where we have a super abundant society and human toil is reduced to the minimum. It's going to be a dystopian world where inequality is huge, the, the class divisions are, are massive, and uh, a, a tyranny of a few controls the rest of us. So the introduction of robots would lead to a very small amount of labor compared to the amount of capital that's invested, say, in a factory. So the rate of profit, if we look at it from a Marxist point of view, we would predict it would drop precipitously. Where does crisis come into this robotic introduction? Yeah, this is a very important point of political economy for our listeners, that uh, the Marxist view of political economy is that uh, the only thing that, that has any value is the expenditure of human labor. Nothing is uh, produced unless human labor apply it. 
So you can have a machine, but it's still got to be turned on and used. Uh, and, it, and therefore, whatever it produces, whatever services we have, require the expenditure of human labor. And that under capitalism, but what is produced can be captured and uh, turned into uh, a product, a commodity to be sold on the market for profit, and that profit is accrued and captured by the owners of the capital, not by the people who have who have expended their labor. So labor is the only form of value, uh, source of value, but that label, that value is generally, or well, most of it, is captured for the purposes by the capitalist in order to invest yet again. Now. If uh, labor goes to zero and we have robots on human labor, there, there is no human labor, then there is no value produced. So you could say there's no profit produced, and so capitalism has disappeared. And that would be true. Maybe when we were talking about Paul Mason bef before, he was saying we could move to a society without value uh, because laborers won't have to work and robots will do everything, and therefore capitalism has disappeared. I don't think it's going to happen like that. What would happen is and we're certainly not at the stage where robots can uh, do everything, and produ including producing new robots, reproducing robots. We're not to reach to that point where every piece of human labor is replaced. What would happen is that over a period of the next, if you like, the century ahead, we, if this is the process that's going to happen, then will increasingly the profitability of capital will fall because the mechanization and the increase of robots replacing human labor will take place. Because the profitability falls uh, under capitalism, then we will enter a series of intense crises because crises comes from profitability falling to the point where capitalists don't want to invest anymore and we have a process of laying off labor and closing down of plant and equipment that was there before. And so we go through these cycles of crises. And these crises will intensify as the, as the tendency for the profitability in capital falls across the globe and that would increasingly be the case and it would be speeded up under robots. So before we ever got to a world where the human labor debt was not involved at all and it was totally robots doing everything, we would go through a series of crises under capitalism which would have to be decided one way or the other, whether we end up with a tyranny of the few or uh, a democratic control of the majority and the use of this new robot and artificial intelligence technology for all. Well, when I hear this argument about how much of an impact robotics are making, some of it strikes me as some kind of a way to explain to people on some level why things are getting slightly worse and why we're in a crisis situation. It's like, oh, well, let's, let's blame the automation or the robotics this increased productivity has been the history of capitalism over the last, you know, 200 years. There was always something getting more efficient and more efficient. Do you think that it kind of somehow plays a role, like a fear role, like immigration does for those people who are racist? You know, it's like for liberal people who don't want to give out about, you know, immigrants because of the economy. They say, oh, it's the robots. Well, I'm sure that's the case that we have... Um... I mean, we only have to go back to the famous examples in the 19th century, what's called the Luddites in Britain, when uh, the hand weavers who used to weave all the cloth by hand using very simple machines were replaced by machines that could weave and obviously produce much more and much quicker than the hand weavers who were then all out of work. These uh, hand weavers blamed the machinery, not capitalism, because that development of uh, technology under a socialist or a commonly owned and democratically run uh, economy, 
those hand weavers would find other, we would give a new work to do uh, rather than continue to do the hand weaving unless it had some particular purpose uh, or value. But instead, under capitalism, they just lost all their jobs. They blamed the machines, not capitalism, and proceeded to go around in the night and smash the machines up for a period of time. That policy failed. But you can see that the same, sometimes the same arguments raised that we don't want robots because they will, we'll lose all our jobs. I think what seems to be, uh, Thomas, even more is the fact that robots could be um, killer machines, that uh, they could come out of the control of human beings, reproduce themselves, be super intelligent to the point way more than um, human beings. It's called the point of, almost at the point of sing singularity where robots replace, uh, produce robots and human beings disappear as controlling the world. And this robot world can actually start going around destroying human beings. I suppose it's just about science fiction possible to think of that. But of course, we're a long, long way from that situation. As you pointed out, the technology isn't anywhere near that level yet. And well before we get to that, the issue of who controls capital, the struggle for jobs and conditions out of the process of technology, just as it was in the 19th century, will intensify in the 21st century if this technology becomes prevalent. I've listened to Chomsky given some talks about AI and, you know, linguistics and how they, how they interact. And he was saying that, you know, where they've made, you know, some major advances in understanding linguistics, they're still only literally scraping the barrel of trying to understand how the brain works. And that AI is, is kind of like nuclear fusion. It's one of those things that's always 50 years away. Every year, it nearly gets further away. That this kind of idea that artificial intelligence, well, I know there are some people out there, singularitarians, who think that, you know, it's just a function of the complexity of our computer networks, that if we get more and more and more, then they'll somehow self-organize or something. But Chomsky would just kind of laugh at that and say, you know, they need an innate structure and you need to understand the structure for AI and that essentially we've got absolutely no idea. I tend to agree with Chomsky. I think he's right that um, we're way, way short of this... Uh either utopia or dystopia yet, uh, to the point where robots and AI, AI are going to take over the world. Um, they did a recent uh, test of latest artificial intelligence robots to see how well they could pass a few simple tests and doing various tasks, and most and they mostly failed these tasks. They're still well short of what a human being can do in all sorts of situations. It's getting better. I was reading this week, for example, we're going to have uh, robot uh, lettuce farms. So all lettuces will be ma manned, uh, supervised and tended by robots. Not robots looking like human beings, but robots that water plants, take the weeds out and do all the rest uh, without any human beings being involved. But not entirely without any human beings, because apparently human beings still have to check whether lettuces have germinated properly so that the seeds will develop into new lettuces. Robots can't do that task yet. They can't recognize whether a seed is germinated. That still depends on a human being looking down the microscope. So there is still a long way to go before robots can replace all sorts of human intelligence. I think that Chomsky is right, that it's, it's a wild science fiction idea to have that this is all, as it were, on their doorstep and it's about to replace us all. 
Have you seen the videos of, I think, is it DARPA, the Department, I think, of Defense Research Wing in America, where they have these robot competitions and where they have them trying to open a door and things like this? Yes. And they just stand there for 10 minutes and then fall all over. Yes. We're a long way from anything that looks like a human being that can open a door. There's some good ones I've seen of um, robotic dogs and horses where they're running and you can kick them and they can stabilize. But you were saying in one of your blog posts, like some of the most difficult things are for robots are some of the simplest things for humans. It's like, you know, taking a, picking a pound note out of your pocket or something like that. Yeah, I can't do that. I was talking to, on a previous episode, Professor Paul Cockshot, another Marxist guy who does robotics as well. And he was saying they were trying to develop a robot that could fold a bed sheet and that it was just the most insanely complex thing that they couldn't figure it out. In the meantime, we're going to have driverless cars and you know everything delivered by drones. All that sort of thing may well happen, but that doesn't place robots in control of the world, I don't think. When does Paul Mason, what's his timeline for this post-capitalist society? I think he thinks, well, if, I'll, I'll leave it to readers to judge if they want to read his book, which is certainly something interesting to do. Uh, he says the seeds are already there in this uh, new technology and the network produced by the internet of communities outside of the control of capital itself. That We've seen that develop, for example, he argues, in Greece, where lots of local communities got together, organized locally, away from the power of capital and the, the troika, the government there and that they organized, self-organized, using the internet. We, the argument is that Facebook and things like this, the social media is a powerful force getting people together. We no longer need to have the old-fashioned demonstrations and strikes and so on because people can organize through the social media. All the seeds are there for an alternative society that will come through, and the sheer pressure of this new technology and the ability to uncon- not be able to control it by capital will we'll create the possibilities, he says. I think he's optimistic that that would happen. I think it would be correct to say that Mason says he's pessimistic about the old class struggle. That's never going to happen. The working class isn't a force for change anymore. But he's optimistic about this new form of um, change, which will happen through the new powers of technology, not controlled by capitalism. I'm not convinced by this argument. I don't think that new technologies are out of the control of capitalism. I think they are capturing and controlling much of it. Just as they didn't control everything in the 19th century, they don't control everything now, uh, but they still manage to control the majority of this because they own the capital which invests and uh, controls it on the whole. They do. I'm not sure that the class struggle is all that over. It's a little bit Western-looking to talk about it like that. When we look at the world globally, we see huge working-class development in manufacturing industry in places like China, India and elsewhere, and they've yet to come on the scene in terms of their influence in about changing the world for the better. And I still think the working class as a class still exists. That's people who sell their labour for a living and nothing else. And the industrial working class is not shrinking globally. It's actually growing, not in in the West, but in these other countries. And that is... Possibly, in my view, a more optimistic indicator of the future. Chomsky made the point as well is that there are some things that we have the capacity to understand. So say like a dog could never learn calculus or Marx's theory of labor theory of value. That it might be the similar case for us to be able to understand 
what is the basis of how our brain operates and gives us our sense of free will. You know, that perhaps this goal of robotic AI, the complete science fiction robot who is able to just replicate themselves and behave, you know, like humans or whatever, that this might actually be totally beyond our capacities as a species. As he says, it might be. He's saying, in effect, that there are limits to human intelligence. Um, whether we've reached those limits, it's impossible to say. Human intelligence and its application to understanding the world and taming the world, which is what human beings is the only animal that really does that, has been unbelievably huge, particularly in the last 250 years under the capitalist mode of production. So, but I think the, um, the potential under a socialist uh, world is even greater. So it's very difficult to say whether we've reached the limits of human intelligence and that we will never be able to really understand everything. Just like a dog can't understand what's around the world apart from its small area, are we just the same? Well, we certainly are at the moment, but um, how far the limits of human intelligence can go, it really is impossible to say. Chomsky probably knows better than me because he's the man who's studied it more. The new technology of robots and AI is certainly developing fast. In, as in all technology under capitalism, it has a capital bias, so it will replace human labour. Jobs are going to be lost, and the aim is to reduce costs. That will intensify the contradiction under capitalism between trying to raise the productivity of labour through robots and AI and the tendency for the profitability of the owners of capital uh, to fall. So there's a contradiction between productivity and profitability, which will increase and intensify the possibility of crises well before we get to a society controlled of superabundance where robots are just working for us and human labour is totally replaced. The issue of whether capitalism will survive or whether it will be replaced by uh, a democratically com commonly owned system where the majority rules will be decided before robots take over the world, if they ever do. That's the issue that we have to still bear in mind. And the idea that we can just move gradually to some sort of superabundant society where human toil is reduced just through this new technology, I think is utopian because we have to recognise that that won't happen without a struggle against uh, the tyranny of a small, very small part of human beings who control capital in the world. And that issue will decide the choice between a utopian society and a dystopian one. This idea of networks and technology kind of doing the revolution for us, it kind of strikes me as kind of nearly new agey or something like these age of Aquarius things whereby, you know, yeah. suddenly there will be a, you know, Jupiter will be in the fifth quadrant. It's all of a sudden our nature <laughs> will change and we'll all live in peace and get on. It seems to be some kind of like something similar, some kind of inability to grasp the nettle. Yeah, it's saying, saying two things, I think, Thomas, it's saying, the working class as an agency of change no longer is possible. There isn't a working class. It no longer can really bring about the change for a better world. However, don't worry. The very development of new technology is creating new sorts of agencies, networks of small communities who can get together out of the control of capital. And they, through the force of technology and their work, will change the world. We hope. That's the basis of it. It's pretty vague. You're blogging away like a crazy man for, I don't know how you do it, putting out so many good articles all the time. I'm not working for capitalism anymore. Oh, well, even when you were working, you were doing an extraordinary amount. Um, it's very impressive. 
my personal experience was that I would never come across say your work or similar people's work if it wasn't for the internet what hopes do you have it for helping to change the structure of society you know because it does offer that kind of idea of the the long tail it allows people to get to these kind of radical ideas and the cost to say for you to do a blog and put it out there and have you know t- thousands tens of thousands or you know maybe if you're lucky a hundred thousand people reading something it's remarkably cheap absolutely it's a fantastic development isn't it for communication for the majority to try and get a better world. It's a fantastic development. But then probably way back at the development of printing was also completely revolutionized the possibilities for the mass of people first to read things for the first time and to read them in their own language. That was an earlier point. So the printing press was a major technological development which helped the masses and threatened the ruling class's position, which is why they opposed or tried to control it for so many years, and did so, uh, to control printing technology and banned books and all the rest of it. So the process of um, this new internet has opened up tremendous possibilities for people to get together, to understand the world and try to change it for the better. But also there will be a struggle to control this new technology by the owners of capital because they wish to preserve their positions. That's The class struggle is not going to disappear. This just perhaps... This is a great uh, boost for the majority, but also a big challenge for the owners of capital. Well, Michael, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thank you too. Jesters with Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to Planet Junior by The Babe Rainbow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me in the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Music.